Despite the prominence of randomized control trials in medical research, they've rarely been used to evaluate healthcare delivery. Recently, however, researchers, practitioners, and policymakers have started to find ways to overcome barriers to the widespread use of such studies to help address system-wide issues. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Amy Finkelstein, a professor of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Professor Finkelstein has written a perspective article about using randomized control trials to answer healthcare policy questions. Professor Finkelstein, you write in your perspective article that between 2009 and 2013, just 18% of studies of U.S. healthcare delivery used randomization. So why have researchers been staying away from randomization for these studies? That's a terrific question. The thing that we find so striking is not just how few randomized control trials were traditionally done for studying problems of healthcare delivery, but the contrast with how frequently they're done for studies of medical interventions, not just drug trials for which they're often required, say by the FDA, but even non-drug medical interventions, we estimated over two-thirds of these studies involve randomized evaluation. One of the things that we're working on at j North America, the research center I co-direct at MIT, is to help understand and reduce the barriers to doing randomized control trials on important issues such as U.S. healthcare delivery to encourage more of them. And I'm incredibly excited about the progress both that we've contributed to, but more importantly, have just seen in the world around us since we started seven years ago. I think there are a number of perceived and actual barriers to doing randomized clinical trials for improving healthcare delivery, all of which have been coming down in recent years. So one, first and foremost, is the natural ethical concern about denying important services to people who could benefit from them. In practice, however, in healthcare delivery, there are often logistical and financial constraints that mean that more people are eligible for a program than can be served. And that can lend itself naturally to randomization as a fair, as well as scientifically rigorous, way of allocating scarce resources. This is exactly what happened in the state of Oregon in 2008 when they had a limited budget to expand their Medicaid program for low-income adults but didn't have enough money to cover all individuals. The state of Oregon decided without any input from researchers but after consulting with various stakeholders that the fairest way to allocate these limited Medicaid slots was to ask interested eligible individuals to sign up and then to do a lottery. And I should say, the, the fact that they did that lottery then enabled myself and other researchers to study the impact of a Medicaid expansion, a topic of huge policy importance and interest, using the same techniques we use to study randomized evaluations of new drugs, namely a randomized control trial between the people who signed up for the lottery and won the ability to enroll in Medicaid and those that did not. What about the time and the financial cost associated with conducting rigorous randomized trials? Are those factors less of an issue than they once were? Are there still barriers? I think after the ethical issue, the next issue that is often raised is the time and financial cost associated with running randomized trials. Let's take those in turn. The time cost argument, I think, is rarely compelling in the sense that if one is doing prospective research, I don't care how smart or able you are, if you're looking at outcomes six months after the intervention, 
you're not going to be able to study that in less than six months. Therefore, if you're building in a design to study it, why not make it a randomized design rather than some type of observational study? I think historically, the financial costs of doing a randomized evaluation have loomed large. And one thing that I'm incredibly excited about and optimistic about is the increasing availability and use of administrative data that have made implementing RCTs easier and less expensive than it once was. So as an example, we recently uh, published a piece in the New England Journal a few months ago on a randomized evaluation of the Camden Coalition of Healthcare Providers, so-called hotspotting program. This was modeled on an RCT of a similar care transition program that had been done two decades ago. A key difference that made our lives much easier and made the study, I presume, less expensive is that we were able to use administrative data uh, from the hospitals that the Camden Coalition had put together, as well as administrative discharge data from the state of New Jersey on hospital admissions to study the impact of the intervention. Whereas in the previous RCT of a similar care transition program, researchers had used telephone interviews with patients to obtain information on the outcome. In both cases, the primary outcome was readmission, but we were able to uh, measure that outcome at, I presume, lower cost and certainly lower effort than they were able to because of this advent of administrative data. We also had much less concern about potential non-response bias than we would have whenever you're conducting interviews. So I think this type of administrative data is increasingly making randomized trials of healthcare delivery both faster and cheaper and more robust. It also allows for potentially rapid testing of repeatedly fine-tuned interventions. For example, Adam Sikorny, one of the researchers in j Network, together with several co-authors, partnered with CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, on an RCT evaluating the effect of sending letters to physicians who were prescribing disproportionately large amounts of certain drugs. The original letters were sent in the late fall of 2014. The researchers used administrative data from Medicaid to quickly learn that the, that the letters weren't having any impact at reducing prescribing within 30 to 90 days. They built on psychological and other research to modify an alternative letter and launched that subsequent RCT in April 2015, nine months later. And by the way, that second RCT found that the um, more strongly worded letters were uh, having uh, an impact on prescribing. So this type of administrative data is allowing for those quick and rapid testing and experimentation, as well as less expensive and more robust studies of longer-run intervention. So you've described several studies. In general, what kinds of questions in healthcare policy are well-suited to randomized controlled trials, and what kinds perhaps are not? You raise a very important question. Obviously, not all healthcare delivery questions can or should be studied with randomized intervention. If there's not a natural logistical or financial shortage that is preventing everyone from getting access, or there's not clinical equipoise, obviously no one wants to deny known valuable services to people simply in the name of science. But one of the things that I find incredibly exciting going forward is that Randomized evaluations have been shown to be useful at answering both specific narrow questions at the patient or the physician level, as well as much more system-wide questions. So we've talked already about patient-level randomization, such as the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, which randomized access to Medicaid. We've also done physician-level randomization 
for example, for testing the impact of clinical decision support designed to help physicians reduce high rates of so-called inappropriate high-cost scanning or imaging. But often what I used to hear when I went out in the world, which I do occasionally, is that once you help people understand how the ethical and financial and time cost barriers to RCTs can be overcome, as we've just been talking about, they would look me in the eye or sometimes look down at me and say, but you know, Amy, the really important questions in U.S. healthcare policy are system-wide, and you can't do an RCT at the system level. And I would say somewhat cheekily, well, sure you can. You just have to randomize a higher level, like a city or a state, and they would laugh at me. What's been really exciting to see is large-scale organizations taking on exactly that type of system-wide study. For example, again, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, launched in 2016 a system-wide payment reform, bundled payment for hip and knee replacement, which they launched as a five-year randomized control trial at the MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area level. So they're actually randomizing system-wide reform of bundled payment and allowing us and other researchers to study in a rigorous fashion what those impacts are. So I think the sky is the limit given the interest of policymakers and the creativity of researchers. And I'm very optimistic to see increasing uses of it going forward. So finally, how can individual healthcare systems go about using randomization to make their approaches to care delivery more evidence-based? Individual healthcare systems have I think two types of possibilities. One, they can do what NYU Rangon Health has recently done under the direction of Dr. Laura Horowitz and others and embed rapid cycle quality improvement projects that are randomized into their standard operation, standard protocol for, for studying quality improvement. Individual healthcare systems are constantly innovating and trying to study how to improve quality and outcomes. In many, many cases, they're trying it on a limited scale and are not sure what are going to work, and they'll be able to figure out much more quickly and robustly what is working if they embed randomization. The second thing they can do is partner either across institutions within a healthcare system or across healthcare systems to aggregate information and conduct larger studies that are going to have more widespread generalizability to the whole population. And in both cases, one of the things we do at JCOM North America is offer support to interested health organizations who want to partner with the researchers in our network to conduct these types of randomized trials. So we can help make the data and the implementation side of things a lot smoother and easier. Thank you, Professor Finkelstein.